Hello and welcome back to the Heart Gallery Podcast with me, Rebecca Rivola de Kremer. I am an artist, creative advisor, and visual communicator working mostly in the climate and humanitarian space. I've been working here for about a decade and I also have a personal art practice where I explore relationships between individuals, other living beings, and our earth. I created this podcast to inquire into the various roles that art can play in helping us create deeper connections with our surroundings and others, both human and more than human. Listen to hear from other artists engaging in these interrelationships with all kinds of approaches and philosophies and hopes for the future of humanity and our planet, and learn about different ways that art can help create necessary change. In this episode, I talk to visual artist Joyce Eugene Lee. Joyce works with video, digital photography, and interactive installations that combine social practice with institutional critique. Curious about how the act of seeing is transformed by technology, her artwork examines how mass media and visual culture shape notions of truth and understanding of the quote-unquote other. Her project about internet censorship, Firewall, garnished some serious backlash from Chinese state authorities in 2016. We talk about that extensively in the episode. And she has exhibited at the Lincoln Center in New York City, the Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway, the Hong Kong Center for Community Cultural Development, and the Austrian Association of Women Artists in Vienna. Her artwork has been written about in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Hong Kong Free Press, China Digital Times, Apple Daily Taiwan, Huffington Post, and so many others. And she is assistant professor of art and digital media at Marist College and has previously taught at the Fashion Institute of Technology, Maryland Institute College of Art, Corcoran College of Art and Design, New Jersey City University, and has also worked at the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art. I became aware of Joyce and her work when I heard her speak quite by chance at an art show opening here in Washington, D.C. I was captivated by her work illuminating recent scientific discoveries in the mesophotic zone, which is the little-known twilight zone of coral reefs. It is colder, deeper, and harder to study than the reefs we're typically familiar with that are closer to the surface of the ocean. We talk about that work here in the episode in addition to discussing how art can be used to connect with the other, reconciling social commentary artwork with the elite settings it is often found in, and how to navigate artwork generating potentially dangerous attention. I found what she said about the agency of the consumer to be of critical value, and also what she shared with me about whether or not artists have a responsibility to be of service to society. I'm so grateful to have gotten to have this conversation with Joyce Eugene Lee. Hello, Joyce. Welcome to the Heart Gallery podcast. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I wanted to start by examining your background a little bit, if you're okay with that. I read a couple articles 
And I saw that you at one point were on the verge of going into fashion. You were a college student. You were at UPenn, I believe. And you had an internship in New York City for the summer at a fashion house. And you were also, at the same time, you were interning or assisting a Japanese-American artist also in Manhattan, I believe, Makoto Fujimura. And it seemed like you were living these two lives altogether. You went back to school and 9-11 happened. And I read an account from you. I read an account where you were sharing how this was a moment of reckoning for you about your career, about what you wanted to do, spend your time on. Can you share more about how that was a milestone moment in your life? Yeah. So 9-11 was a really big game changer for me. I knew many people in it. So the guy I was dating at the time, my college boyfriend, was working at World Trade 7. And I had two cousins that were in various buildings in the financial district. And one of our classmates from college, his father worked in Tower 1. His father's name was Alex Chang. And so when 9-11 happened, I was on the college campus and actually I was in a painting class taught by Susanna Jacobson, who's a professor who taught at Penn and at Yale. And she came in and she just said, you know, there, an airplane flew into the Pentagon. And I remember our class was kind of stunned, but we did have one student whose brother worked in the Pentagon. So she started crying and we were just dismissed, you know, and it took a while for me to really realize the gravity of what had happened that day. So I just went to like check my email and um, I got a bunch of emails from friends assuring me that my boyfriend was okay. And it dawned on me like, oh, I know a lot of people who work down there. And so unfortunately in the two weeks afterwards, it was a lot of tracking family and friends and figuring out where they were and realizing that unfortunately, um, classmate John, his, his father had passed. And so that experience at the start of my senior year in college, back to back with having just spent the summer in New York City doing these internships that you referenced, was really a paradigm shift for me. So I was not in love with the fashion industry after I got a closer glimpse at it. And working with Makoto really opened my eyes to the day-to-day life of what an artist's you know, comings and goings are in the city. And so I realized, well, if, if I can wake up tomorrow and it's my last day, you know, because we live in a crazy world and who knows what kind of attacks might happen or environmental catastrophes like we're seeing now this year, if I can wake up tomorrow and it's my last day, I want to make sure that when I pass, I'm doing something I really believe in. And even though I had been studying communications at University of Pennsylvania. And I thought it was a good compromise between kind of this practical, get a job track and blending the creative. It didn't really um, give me life. And so I realized at that point, I've always loved art. When I was a child, I was voted most likely to become an artist in high school. (laughs) And I did all, yeah, I did all these art competitions and things. And so I just realized like, I think I have to do something I truly love and every day would wake up feeling good doing. And that's art. So I didn't even have a plan, but I just knew that um, I would have to turn my track around. Yeah. Did it take you that long because you felt like art wasn't a viable track? Yeah, I did. Because, um, you know, I grew up 
with um, Chinese, Taiwanese, American immigrants. So they're very cross-cultural, transnational. And this stereotype of the tiger mom held true in our family to a certain degree. So my parents always said, um, you can do anything you want for your future vocation. But my mom insisted, you have to be in the top 20%. <laughs> I love that. That's where, that's <laughs> Whatever where you are, mom. be a good one. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And so I remember as a child really challenging that. You know, I asked her, well, what if I wanted to be a garbage collector? And I think I probably was like in second or third grade at this point. And my mother said, garbage collectors in Texas make more than public school teachers. <laughs> so yes, you can be a garbage collector as long as you're in the top 20%. You have to work really hard, you know, in whatever it is that you choose. So I think that was the thing that kind of prevented me from considering art as a, as a viable livelihood. Like I had no example in my community growing up in Texas, in my you know Chinese American community of what an artist's life looked like, which is why meeting Makoto, who's, um, you know, Japanese American was really an eye-opening experience. So I can realize, you know, this is what artists do with their day-to-day and it is possible. And after 9-11, it just, it really drove home, like to me, what I'm most passionate about and what I want to dedicate my life to. Yeah. Was that scary? Did you in that moment think back to your mom's advice and think like, oh gosh, now I have to figure out how to be in the top 20% if I'm going to be an artist? (laughs) I wasn't thinking about the top 20% at that point. I was really thinking about, you know, I was thinking about my classmate, John, and what it was like for him to have a dad one day and then not the next day. And I thought to myself, like, everybody's time on this earth is is precious and limited. And so I was really focusing on how I wanted to spend that time for myself. And you haven't looked back since, is that right? I haven't looked back. It's been a hard journey, but a really worthy one. And, you know, it sounds kind of cliche to say, but I, I don't, I am very happy focusing on making work. Yeah. That's fantastic. And and it seems to me from my research, your body of work since that time has just been, I mean, it's just so impressive. And I mean, I just want to share a couple, like just, just to illustrate the range of topics that you've been working on and um, just to give the audience a sense of, of what it is that you have been doing. So I'm going to choose like just a couple of projects that come to my mind. There is this one that you worked on around the 2016 election uh, where you spent 28 days praying. And I think you called this a gesture of empathy um, to Muslim Americans. And you did this incredible thing where you were tracing your, I believe your hands and your legs, knees on paper. And then you created these incredible patterns that then became the site specific installation. And then another example of a, of another project you, which is actually how I came to know of you. You recently were working on raising awareness, exploring um, mesophotic zone corals. So this is, you can share more about it, but this is an area of the ocean that previously we had no idea there were corals there. And this is very new news. Uh, I heard you speak at the Krieger Museum about this, and you were saying that you know, only in the last couple of years have we managed to to see some of these these corals in this zone. And so you're working on this. And then if I can share one more to illustrate this range, I think also in 2016, you had an exhibit 
this firewall exhibit where you're focusing on censorship, um, but you're also focusing on media and what people are exposed to and what people are interested in, looking specifically at China and the United States. And this exhibit that you had, also interactive, you had computers, two computer screens side by side, where you had uh, Google and Baidu, I think that's the pronunciation, mm-hmm. uh, and people would enter a search term and Uh, would see how that search term was turning out results in the United States and in China and just illustrating how certain topics had very different results. And so, I mean, this is just an incredible range and there's so much more. I encourage everyone to check out your website. But how do you characterize what it is that you're passionate about? Yeah, that's a good question. So in all of my artwork, I'm looking at the perception and the depiction of the other mass media. And so the other could be through what we see in our search engines and internet culture portrayed, as you mentioned in the firewall project. It could be the other in terms of news stories that are um, minimized or not getting the attention they deserve in our journalistic kind of mass media cycle, like the uh, news about the mesophotic And it could also be um, the other in terms of transnational or multicultural citizens who are not necessarily of American nationality, you know, so they're foreigners or immigrants, um, like in the Vertical Project. And I think this interest in the other stems from my own identity, being, you know, the child of immigrants in America. And... um, being a visible minority, you know, being female presenting, um, you know, yellow skin, black hair, brown eyes, uh, doesn't matter how American I am, I will never visually blend in as the mainstream. So the other is a really potent experience in my life. And so I'm always interested in connecting with the other. So whether that's like an idea or a, a community of people, That's kind of the one common thread that weaves together everything in my art practice. And I am the kind of artist who's interested in ideas and then kind of the material and medium follow, which is why I think I work in uh, many different disciplines as far as video projection, installation, photography, and now more and more sculpture and also socially engaged uh, software like you mentioned, a firewall. So I think as my career is progressing, I'm starting to limit, you know, the mediums I work in, but the focus on the others is always there. I appreciate that so much. And also as an immigrant myself, um, originally my family's from, I was born in Czechoslovakia. We emigrated to Canada. And then um, I'm now uh, trying to get a green card here in the United States. And so I relate. But I also know, I see that privilege that I've experienced my whole life, like where I can, I can blend, you know, in, in whatever setting, whether it was Canada or here. I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm, I'm curious what you said about the, about how your idea, your ideas have led and then your materials have followed. When you go back, when you go back in time in your career, do you, was there a point at which you were more interested in just creating art and, and you weren't really sure like what it was that you were wanting to create? You just wanted to, to be a maker or, or were there ideas even at that point? 
you know, art for me was, is a second career, you know? So I started in advertising on Madison Avenue and because of 9-11, it was a really um, intentional decision that I made to shift gears and pursue art. And so at that point, I didn't know what I wanted to make, but it was really just about exploring mediums, you know, and as a child, I could always draw and um, paint. And so that's kind of where I started. But once I got into graduate school, it was interesting, you know, and this is maybe where the othering experience comes in is um, I realized very quickly that painting is a canon in art history that is really difficult to um, tackle as an artist. Not, And it's very worthwhile, but the feedback I got in grad school made me realize like, okay, like I have to pick my battles here and maybe it's not with painting. <laughs> and so um, at that point, I was just thinking about making something personally meaningful. And so I made a documentary about my grandmother. And at the time she was 97. So this was like 2009. It's a while ago. She was 97. And um, she was splitting her time between Taiwan and China um, in Xiamen, where my uncle lives, and has a shoe factory. And I really wanted to tell her story because I remember thinking, I guess, I mean, this sounds kind of grim to say, but I think the brevity of life has always been a really big motivator for me in making art, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of why I became an artist after 9 11. And in graduate school, I was thinking about my grandmother and how you know, she's really up there in her years and I didn't know how much time I would have with her left. And she's so far away. Um, she was completely um, hard of hearing, so deaf. You know, she had lost all her hearing. So it was really difficult to communicate with her. And I thought to myself, like, how can I celebrate the person that she is? She's this incredibly strong woman that had her feet bound when she was 15. She was the last generation of women in China who had bound feet. Incredible. And it's, it's just so wild. And to think about, you know, the Sino-Japanese uh, war and having her feet unbound by Japanese soldiers and then immigrating to uh, Taiwan where, you know, it was occupied by Japan for many years. So it was, it was just a very complex history and thinking about what was her journey like as a woman and as a mother, right? And so at that point, I decided, okay, I'm going to make something personal. I don't know what I'm doing or where I'm going with this project. But that was my very first video piece. Yeah. And at that time, <laughs> software has changed so much. At that time, everybody was using Final Cut Pro. We were still shooting on SD videotapes. So everything was still very analog. And at that point, there was no like 4K video. Um, DSLRs were just starting to be able to have video capacity. So it was really an interesting time for the discipline of video as, as medium. But that was my first video. And in graduate school, I got this overwhelming response to this project. And it was really surprising to me. But I realized like, oh, there's something valuable in my other perspective and in, in, the, in the life experience of my family that is so different than maybe the average American. And so I think at that point, I realized like, okay, this is something I can focus on. And every project moving forward, whether it was mining art history tradition of Western painting and thinking about the representation of the figure and the lack of, you know, faces that looked like mine or thinking about what we experience day to day in representation of minority communities and or um, social issues. 
that was kind of the turning point where I started to realize like, okay, I want to tell this story and the, the medium will follow, follow the concept of the, of the work. I've heard you say that you don't listen to the news or you don't watch the news. And yet you, you're such a commentator on, on what's going on around us. I love what you're saying about the other and, and about the interrelationships between, between us and others and all these different groups and the rest of the world. And, and so much of your work gets at that. So I'm wondering, um, what is your, your relationship with, with tracking what's happening uh, while simultaneously maintaining enough of a distance to form your own perspective? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I'm actually a news junkie. (laughs) (laughs) I love news, but the thing is I take it all in, in the form of podcasts. And I think part of that is because I'm such a visual person that the powered images and seeing so much on television or streaming online that can be disheartening, whether it's human rights abuses or uh, political geopolitical conflict, it really impacts me. Like I'm the kind of person that I can't watch a horror movie. <laughs> I can't either. <laughs> yeah. Those images will just stay with me, you know? And they do and stay with you. I mean, if science shows that our minds can't distinguish, right? Unless like, maybe you're so desensitized, but your mind, if you see something in a horror movie, like it seems it's, it's real, like on some it's level real. in your head, it's real. Yeah. And so um, this is something I actually talk a lot about with my, with my college students because, you know, having worked in the media industry, I understand that um, media, mass media and journalism especially is a product that's produced, that's meant to be consumed, just like this podcast that we're recording, right? And so I always think about the agency that the consumer can exert over their consumption to think about, you know, what do I want to expose myself to? What do I want to by, right, in terms of information, whether it's visual or audio or, you know, written, what do I want to buy um, that I think will in some way enrich or better my life? And I don't think, I don't have anything against television or, um, you know, watching the news. I'm just not the kind of person that that helps. And so for me, I take, I, you know, I read the news and I listen to the news and I feel like that way I can kind of protect my my interior world from being quote unquote, like manipulated or polluted perhaps by the onslaught of images that we see in mass media. And I see that impact, I think in my students that they're a different generation, you know, and they grew up where everything is streamed online and at a pace that is really different than what I'm used to. And so, yeah, it's shocking. It affects our attention spans. It affects our ability to focus um, and so that's why I kind of have, I distance myself a bit from the news cycle, but yet I also feel like it's incredibly important to stay aware of what's going on in the world around us. So, Yeah, I appreciate that so much. And and I imagine that your interior wor- world, you're mentioning um, the need to protect it. I imagine that you must have so much going on in there, just gauging from the from the huge range of, of work that I see and, and how you manage to explore so much so beautifully. And I wonder how you sort through your ideas. Because I, mm. I mean, your, your projects, I imagine each of them takes so much time. So how do you filter? How do you figure out what you're going to commit yourself to? So I would say for the last decade, I've been primarily working in installation. And as a result of that format, I think oftentimes 
the exhibition venue does determine a lot of what I make and what I focus on. And so, um, for example, the Mesophotic Sanctuary show, that was really a prompt that was given to me from the curator of the museum who wanted their entire summer season to focus on play. And so as a result, I was thinking about, you know, what environment do I play best in? What environments do I have access to play in because of my class or my, um, you know, position in the world? Um, but other times I make decisions solely based on um, my interest in, in medium. So, so I, I said that a concept leads, which is true, but then when I have to like narrow down and edit what I focus on, I do think about where the, what kind of mediums I want to be using. And so I have a couple of projects that I've shown um, where I'm using video projection on glass. And I just became so enamored with the interplay of light and refraction on that material. And so glass has really been kind of guiding me as I um, work through future shows. And so, um, yeah, so it's a little bit of both. Sometimes the curators help me decide. Sometimes um, I'm just following a medium that I really want to work more in. And, you know, glass is a, is a very specific world that's usually associated with craft and not with high, you know, fine art. And so that's a very debatable, um, you know, conversation that could be its own podcast. But I think that that does kind of help me narrow down what I want to focus on. I didn't know that there was that connection to play. I must have missed that. And I'm, I'm curious, um, even though that wasn't, you know, that was leadership or an idea given to you from the curator, what do you think um, your relationship to play is generally in your practice? And and how does it relate to, to your engagement with the world? I mean, I think artists by nature always play, right? Part of what we do in our studios is experiment without fear of failure. And for me, you know, that means that sometimes I try really, really outlandish ideas. Like my firewall project was prompted by um, the death of a friend, actually, um, named Tai Tai, who lived in China. And um, he took his own life, actually. And, you know, it's a very heavy, serious subject, thinking about um, young queer people in China and what kinds of pressures and um, discrimination they face. But I also thought to myself, like, what's a way that I can present this in a way that is more accessible for a larger audience? And that's where I got the crazy idea, like, okay, Tai Tai loved to spend his time on Facebook and on social <laughs> media interacting with Americans. But what was kind of the dark side of that? Like, what did he see online or experiences in, in his interactions that maybe um, contributed to a negative self-view? And how could I turn that around for a broader audience so that they could experience that playful exploration of the internet, but also see both kind of the good and the bad? Right. And so that's where I got the idea to create a dual dual browser search engine where people can surf the internet on Google, anywhere in the Western world that has it, and compare the results with the internet in China. And that was this outlandish idea, because I don't code, right? I just work digitally, but at that point I didn't know how to code. And I just thought to myself, like, what if I could create this? And so I started asking some friends who do code, like, is this even possible? And um they were like, yes, it is possible. And so I found a collaborator, Dan Pfeiffer, who has done a lot of um, 
socially engaged creative code. He's married to an artist and I would call him a hacktivist. So he's a hacker and an activist. Um, he, he was responsible for creating the dark web for Zuccotti Park when Occupy Wall Street happened. And it was just this, you know, crazy idea. And let's just play around and see what we can build. And it ended up working. So I think that spirit of like, no idea is impossible. Let's just see what kinds of creative responses we can come up with it has, has been a big part of my practice. But I think in terms of play recently, the glass for me has been really fun because um, it's a different way of working in my studio where um, I'm not so screen-based you know, using software and code to create something visually generative, but instead using my hands to interact with the tactile material. And so that has been so much fun for me to explore. And I think I'm going to be integrating that more and more with the digital in my work as well. It really feels like I'm just playing, (laughs) which is fun. That's so great. And I I feel, I mean, it's it's lovely to hear more about the, the background of that project, the firewall Project. And I also think that another thing that you do so well is given that you have an interactive component to so much of what you do, you're inviting people to play too. And I think as we grow up, I don't know, I think everything is, is pushing us to, to not play and to see play as something really unserious. But, but I feel like play is a way for us to comprehend the world, as a way to engage more creatively I mean, I think if artists can provide that for people, and I think you do that, um, that's just that's just like one incredible role that art can play in society. Thank you. Yeah, I was I was actually um, just part of a games and emerging media faculty candidate search at Marist College where I teach, and that's something that's a a really big field of uh, creative research is serious play, and how can serious play really be impactful in a way that, you know, other means of engagement can't materialize? How can putting the audience or like an intended um, participant into a, a playful atmosphere, how can that engage them in serious issues that are otherwise really difficult to talk about? Yeah. And I guess I, I do think about my, I'm not designing video games or board games, but um, I do think of my art that way. That's so cool. I work in the humanitarian sector um, quite a bit, and I have a couple collaborators who are really into games and really into bringing games into policy maker settings. And it's been it's been cool to see like how dialogue can be sparked and people can can just reach more generative collaborative spaces, like when they are, I guess, like pushed like through some sort of discomfort mm-hmm. or just like maybe it's an element of surprise. I don't know, but it's it's great that you're exploring that too, and. Just to go back to your firewall project, um, Mm -hmm. I read in one of your interviews that you, I think you used the word naive, that you were naively surprised at how much of an impact it had and thinking specifically, I mean, I think there was a lot of interest generated, but you were, I believe, thinking specifically about the attention you got from the Chinese government and you had a number of people who were going to be engaging with you, or there was, there was one person in particular who was going to be, I think, speaking at a launch and they had to back out because they couldn't receive that kind of attention and scrutiny. And there was, you know, you were being surveilled at this point. And I'm curious whether in hindsight, you think that that was, that was a great success to, to figure, to, to see that you could have that much impact on cultural discourse 
that you could garner that kind of attention? Or what was your experience like with that? So I hesitate to say that it was successful just because I think that judging the success of artwork in general is a very complex issue, right? And so one could say Firewall was successful because it got a lot of press. (laughs) One could also say that Firewall is very successful because it did garner a response from Chinese authorities. However, as an artist and as a content creator, I think recognition can be a troublesome ambition, right? And so do I think the project reached a big audience? Yes. Do I wish it happened through a Chinese national? In this case, it was um, a human rights lawyer from Guangzhou. Her name is Liu um, Miaoqing. She's, she's not an American citizen. But like, do I think her being targeted by the Chinese government was a success? No, I don't. You know, And so um, I would say I was very naive going into the into this field because it was my first time making artwork that was, I mean, Firewall, Firewall, I would not say Firewall is a political project. I would say it's a human rights, you know, it's a humane project that really focuses on this portrayal of how the internet um, can manipulate our access to information Um, and both like state authorities from authoritarian governments like the Chinese government but also from large corporations like Google who, who exercise corporate censorship and, you know, definitely exert bias in our media, right? But I, I think maybe the success of the project for me as the maker is that I learned that art really can have an impact, you know? And, and we hear this all the time, but it was my first time really experiencing that on the ground where... I put together an exhibition and it was funded by a couple of grants um, from the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, Asian Women Giving Circle, and the Franklin Furnace Fund. Perhaps that funding is what increased its visibility. I'm not really sure, but it was like I was putting something out in the world and the response was much bigger than I anticipated. And so the Chinese government did hear about it and Unfortunately, they did intervene and they tried to censor our event, which was a bunch of uh, Chinese feminists speaking about how the internet plays a role in their activism for um, various issues. So we had speakers who were presenting on queer rights in China, others who were talking about kind of the role of unwed older women in China and how they're Mm. often called a lot of derogatory terms and not seen to have social value. And then the woman who was targeted, the lawyer, she was speaking about um, women's reproductive rights in China and how the single child policy um, led to a lot of abusive practices. And so I experienced, you know, um, there were civilian spies who came to our event because they did not want this human rights um, lawyer to speak about her work. Um, at the time, she was a fellow at the Yale China Center, Yale Law China Center, which has changed names now, but I think it's called like the Paul to look it up, but Paul something, um, China Law Center. And uh, they, you know, they really didn't want that to happen. So we had a very tight RSVP list because we knew it was uh, potentially sensitive. I had spoken to some human rights workers, but since I was new at this, I'm just an artist, not not technically a human rights activist. I didn't know the dangers involved. And so um, 
these civilian spies showed up and nobody knew who they were, but they were clearly foreign and not of the art world. <laughs> they stuck out like a sore thumb, but they wanted to make sure that she didn't present. Yeah. And she didn't present. But her, but the other scholars at Yale are really dedicated to the issue. So they did send a translator to come and present about her work. Um, that translator was American. So, you know, I learned the power of, of my voice and the voice of um, activists through that project. And I learned that what I make does have consequences and not just for myself, for other people. And so now as an artist who wants to continue making socially engaged art, I do have a very different model of stewardship that I think about as I'm starting a project. Um, and I think about how can I tackle an issue with responsible care for everybody involved. And that does mean recognizing my position of privilege as an American that others may not share. And so how can I elevate, you know, a cause where citizens of other countries could be affected without endangering anybody? I do think about that. Oh, and I imagine it must be tough now to think about or following that event like that. I'm curious if you came out of that feeling like having some kind of like having some sort of tangible impact, like whether that that became almost like a marker for you or, or something to reach towards, or if you felt like that was something that you needed to not think about and just, I don't know, like that just seems very tricky, right? Because you talk about how now, now you're trying to build in these safeguards into the way you work. And I imagine that that maybe keeps you out of, of some of the tr- more tricky situations. But then on the other hand, do you sort of want to be stirring the pot a little bit? After that original exhibition in 2016 of Firewall, a nonprofit organization called the Human Rights Foundation reached out to me. And so Firewall has been exhibited at their Oslo Freedom Forums for several years. And that was a really big learning opportunity. It has been a very big learning opportunity for me to be involved with this organization because their belief is that they're, they're a very libertarian organization, which like, I'm not personally a libertarian, um, but I would say that one of the, the strengths of libertarians is that when there is a, a justice issue at hand. Um, they're not waiting for governments to organize and respond. And so part of the motivation behind these conferences is they bring together activists, um, usually very young, who are emerging world leaders, technologists, so people who have kind of creative solutions to um, these different human rights abuses, and they have a platform to be able to communicate and distribute this. And then artists like myself who think out of the box. And so I've really learned at these um, conferences that, you know, that balance of trying to engage an issue and make some small steps towards justice is a balance between protection and self-care. And I see that a lot with activists, young activists, like burnout is real. And, um, being oppressed is real and being um, persecuted is real. And then at the same time, I see a lot of hope that when people from different disciplines are willing to work together and think creatively, there can be some solutions um, or at least some small steps towards the solution. And so I guess to answer your question, where I've arrived 
personally is that Firewall is, is still going to be continually evolving. And so I'm working with a new developer, um, Angelique DeCastro, who works at the New York Times as a, as a developed software developer or software engineer. And so we're trying to come up with a new firewall that people can experience from home. And so that will um, engage audiences more broadly and from safety of their own home. But also um, I have kind of distanced myself a little bit from making work that is so overtly political. So the project I made immediately after firewall was vertical. The project that you mentioned at the beginning about the travel ban that Trump initiated um, in the U.S. against uh, people from Middle Eastern and North African countries, that I wanted to address, but in a completely poetic and abstract way. And so I feel like I've been trying to find the right ground to stand on as an artist between making work about justice issues that I really care about, while also walking a very fine line of impact with what I, what I create visually. So I, ha- I, d- I haven't figured out the balance, but I'm trying to figure that out. Maybe a lifelong pursuit. And you, you, also, you also spoke about creating collaboratively. And I can see that much of your work seems to be collaborative and in one way or another. You have created with children at the Metropolitan Museum. There is this incredible collaboration you did with your mother during the pandemic where your mother was collecting, was recording daily death tolls, I believe from different cities around the world. And you ended up doing some projection work around that. And you did this great project with Asian American, I believe women or women identifying individuals um, about soft solidarity. And that was in response to the rise of anti-Asian hatred that we were seeing that we, I guess, are still seeing, unfortunately, here in the United States. And I imagine the collaborative work from my perspective, it seems like very essential. Like when we're dealing with social issues, it seems like it's difficult to be working in an isolated manner. And I'm wondering how you've shaped your practice, how you balance your own ideas with wanting to be more in a collective. Collaboration really is key for me as a creative person. I know a lot of artists work solo in their studios, but I think because so much of my work is, um, motivated by larger social issues that are outside of myself and in in some cases even external to my own direct experience. I do think collaboration is key and some of it is just logistical. Like my ideas are bigger than the skills I have (laughs) and so that necessitates um, collaborating with software engineers and um, glass artists who are um, master glass blowers from Murano, for example. But oftentimes I also think that like with more intimate collaborations, like the one you mentioned with my mother, oftentimes I am inspired by the creative processes of other people as well. So, you know, my mother worked as an accountant. She's now retired, but she's always been a painter. She does Chinese calligraphy and painting. And now that she's retired, that's something we talk a lot about because I, she's a big reason for why I became an artist. And now that she's retired, um, she's always talked about wanting to focus on her art herself. And so that's kind of an ongoing discussion. But when I saw that she was obsessively recording these death toll numbers during COVID, 
I thought to myself, if this is such a beautiful act of empathy, because, um, you know, I asked her, why are you doing this? And she said, well, we see these numbers displayed in the news and it's hard to imagine the scale of death like that. You know, you see like thousands of people per day dying. What does that even mean? So in her act of recording, right, she's a painter um, at heart, that kind of transcription that happens between kind of our intellectual understanding of something and then enacting it through a bodily performance, this ritual of writing down numbers every day helps embed the truth of this information that she's, that we were all getting at that time during COVID. And that it's really a discipline and that skill was so inspiring to me. And I thought to myself, like, I want to honor this effort that she's put in. And I also want to encourage her to keep on doing it. And so we decided to do that collaboration because she was like, are you sure you want me to keep recording these numbers? I'm like, yes. And so we had this kind of ongoing thing where she would mail me the numbers and I would scan them in. Um, and so collaboration feeds my own practice and also enables it to expand to a scale that I want my ideas to, to be materialized. Yeah. Beautiful. And I have a question about elitism and much of the, of what you address um, gets at different social issues and there are some socioeconomic elements to what you have addressed in your work. And I'm wondering how you reconcile with, I think, being predominantly in these elite institutions very often, you know, spaces that even if the admission, if there is, you know, free admission, some people just don't feel like they are welcome in those spaces. I wonder if you've thought about this, how you reconcile that for yourself. Yeah, I have thought about it. I mean, I'm admittedly very privileged, you know, Um, my parents came to this country without much money, but they were educated you know, and that is its own form of elitism. As a, as a college professor, I can say, you know, education is really a privilege and it's expensive these days, right? But as an educator, the one thing I think about is, I mean, kind of in the same way that I do try to protect myself from the visual stimulus and onslaught of the news cycle, I think about that in terms of like my own position in the world too. And so with the project that you mentioned with children at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you know, that was an invitation from a curator um, for their World Culture Day that they have every year. And um, I've always loved children, right? But it was a good challenge for me to think about how can I make the ideas that I think about that are sometimes very complex and difficult for children to understand, how can I distill that into a simple, engaging experience that is focused on tactile and easy translation of big ideas, right? And so that's an example where I think a lot about accessibility for my practice. Um, And so we were making these simple little um, light boxes that would project their drawings onto the wall just through markers and some acetate that we would fold into these origami forms. And then they use their cell phone. We also had flashlights to like shine their drawings onto these giant weather balloons that we suspended into the space at the Met that we created like this cosmic universe, right? Um, But the question to the children was, you know, what kind of future do you envision? What kind of world do you want, right? And that's a very open-ended question where um, even though I have a vision as, as an artist for what I would want, I really want 
the response to be very democratic where anybody can participate. Every mark is like equally valued in that space as far as how you draw, what you write. And I learned so much from the children, you know, um, that participated and from my students every day. And so I think one way to kind of combat elitism is to really recognize the humanity in all people, regardless of age, gender, orientation, sex, background, and to affirm and um, validate those ideas, even if they're totally different from my own. And um, that's difficult to do through art making, because oftentimes art making can be very um, pedantic. But I'm more interested in my art of creating this environment for discussion, right? The firewall project is like that, or even the vertical project, like Somebody could walk into the installation that I made of the virtual prayer rug, not recognizing what it is, but hopefully become intrigued by, you know, walking on these patterns or experiencing the interactivity of the motion sensor. And when they ask the questions, then that's my opportunity to, you know, speak my vision or my message as an artist. Um, And I think it's really important for people to ask questions if we want to combat elitism and to really listen well. And I'm not saying I've figured that out in my art practice, but I do think that a lot of my projects are structured to be questions to be asked in an environment that can prompt question asking. And hopefully the environment is meditative or inspires reflection in some way that promotes listening. And speaking of the environment, I heard you mention that your relationship to the environment deepened during the pandemic because I think you were encountering or engaging with nature in, in different ways. And and now you have some pieces, or at least um, I've noticed some pieces that engage with the environment, raise questions about our relationship with the environment, around climate change. And how do you think that connects into your social commentary work? And how has that environment relationship for you been shaped? I guess I was thinking about, you know, during COVID shutdown, everybody was so cloistered in their own homes. And I think for many people around the world, one of the reliefs from being quarantined or or from a a city being shut down like New York was to go outdoors. But I remember listening on the news to, you know, these very complex issues, especially in New York City, of access to green space. And this is something that exists in a lot of large cities, you know, the way um, cities were developed and unfortunately the way um, zoning or redlining may have happened in the past. Um, There are marginalized communities that exist in very concentrated spaces without access to green space, without access to parks. And I remember listening to that and then also at the same time hearing about these Russian oligarchs whose yachts had been confiscated at the start of the Russian-Ukrainian war and realizing the immense amount of wealth that was represented by these ships, you know, like a yacht is millions of dollars. And what is the purpose of that yacht? It is just so a very elite population can explore a part of our globe and our, and our, you know, the natural world around us that most people who are just common citizens would never get to experience. Right. And so it was this weird, like realizing this was happening around me. I was, I was really craving going on hikes and going outside and 
being immersed in a space that was not my home. And then hearing about this stark contrast and accessibility with being able to enjoy our natural world. And so that's kind of where I became interested in making work that was about the environment. And the story that I latched onto was the scientific discovery of the mesophotic zone, right? Which most people haven't seen, really just scientists have been exploring. But like with all coral reefs around the world, they eventually become tourist destinations, right? But because of our actual because of people's leisure activity, we're also in many ways damaging our globe and our natural resources. And coral bleaching is like, you know, one of my life streams is to go to the Great Barrier Reef, but I don't know if I'll ever get to go because it's being, you know, decimated by global warming and um, acidification of our oceans and temperatures rising. And so I wanted to just celebrate this amazing little news story that I heard about coral adapting at a deeper depth of the ocean than previously thought possible. And just think about, you know, none of us are able right now to explore that, but if we could access everybody a little bit of break from like our regular earthly existence and be immersed in something that is just beautiful and strange and foreign about our planet, like how could I do that in my artwork? And so, um, I guess I've never really thought about global warming and, and climate change as uh, a justice issue, but I think after going through the pandemic, I do see that it is engaged in, um, in many issues around class and access in a way that I previously hadn't thought about. Oh yeah, so much. And you're saying that they, these these yacht dwellers, like that they like get to go out and explore these parts of nature. And I would say, I mean, not knowing any personally, but I doubt so much that they're like out there exploring nature. <laughs> I just have this like show of wealth. Like they don't even care. It's true. Yeah. Oh, devastating. Yeah. And then, and then what's, what's wonderful though, is that you can create an artwork that can connect people to a place that they might never see. And they don't, they don't necessarily even need access to such a monstrosity. You're so you're a teacher, and it's it seems like to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you believe that you have like some kind of responsibility to society, to your surroundings in some kind of way. And I'm wondering if you think that's true, and if you think that artists writ large have a societal responsibility. I definitely personally feel responsibility. I think that, you know, we have one life to live and I want to make mine count. <laughs> so even if that's just through transforming the understanding of our world, one student at a time as, a, as an art professor, like, I think that's meaningful. Recently, I had a student who took a semester off due to some health issues, send me a gift in the mail and she sent me this um, amethyst geode and she wrote just a, just a simple letter, but it was so, it, it, for me, it crystallized why I, why I teach. Um, and she talked about how, you know, in all of her struggles in college and with her health, that talking with me about her artwork was really always this moment of light and love. And so she wanted me to have this crystal in my office to remind myself of that and I was so moved by that gift, you know, and I think these are the kinds of 
moments and transformations that keep me motivated as a teacher, even though it can be challenging. And, you know, our higher education system has a lot of its own problems, but I do feel that responsibility. So if I can achieve this kind of awareness or understanding through recognition in the art world, if I can do it through um, education, like I'm happy to do that. And whether or not I think all artists at large have this responsibility is a really good question. I think that the decision to become an artist is a very personal one. And so for many artists, it's about self-expression. I think for me, um, there's definitely that involved, but I, I see it as a, as a way to communicate through the visual world by creating content that can connect um, and communicate about larger issues. And so I don't know if I would say that every artist has this responsibility. I think some artists, the process of making art and just expressing themselves is something that they need to live. And I'm not sure that there is a larger goal for social good. And, and that's okay. I, I think that's actually fine because I think what makes art resonate is when the artist is able to be genuine with what they feel called to do. And so that is different for every artist. Yeah. That's a beautiful answer. And, and I, I know we've been talking for a long time, so I want to just ask a couple more questions. Hopefully, hopefully you don't have to, don't feel the need to take so much time with these ones because they're just more of these rapid fire types. Okay. So you can go on with your day and, and do other important <laughs> things. But I'm, I'm just curious what's coming up for you in terms of art and projects that we can look forward to and that you're looking forward to. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be part of a group show in the summer. Um, I don't remember what it's called right now, so I'll find out what it's <laughs> called. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's at Five Miles Gallery in Brooklyn. Um, it'll be a group show that's curated by Sophia Ma and um, uh, a leader of a group that I've been involved in called Asianish, um, which is a group of artists, writers, and curators who are Asianish in identity. So they may be bicultural, multicultural, cross-cultural, transnational like me, um, but it's a show that's also about solidarity. And that's a show that I'm really excited about. And um, we, I will be releasing, um, I guess, uh, the updated version of Firewall sometime this year as well. We don't have an exact deadline, but it's going to be a web-based app. And so I would love for people to try it out and give me feedback. And then lastly, I'm just working on a lot of new glass projects. And uh, I don't even have like a show scheduled in mind for them, but um, things always come up, so... Something will happen. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That sounds like a lot of good things coming up. And I'm curious, I had asked you if you would be willing to share three artists that have inspired you or shaped your worldview or how you engage with your art in the world. Do you have three? You mentioned you might have an organization also to share. Yeah. Well, I think I've just thought of three. Um, (laughs) So uh, James Terrell, I think, is a light artist from the 70s that really opened my eyes to the transformative power of light and what it can do to a space. And he's also an artist that really um, has a profound relationship with the earth. Um, you know, he's like a, a light artist, but I would also call an earthworks artist and he's creating rodent, uh, rodent crater 
in New Mexico, which will probably be his lifelong legacy and a way to like use nature and the natural world to really provide us an unusual glimpse of um, the night sky. So he's one artist. Um, the second artist would be Pipilati Rist. I believe she's Swedish. Um, I would have to double check that, but I think she's Swedish. Um, artist that creates really fun and playful video installation that I think just really opened my eyes of what it what it means to play as an artist and to create really unexpected environments for people to immerse themselves in through video and light. And then lastly, I would say that Ai Weiwei is a big influence on me. Yeah, he's a dissident artist from China who creates conceptual sculpture and has recently also been making documentaries and films. And I think he's an artist that really um, understands the role of um, education and class because he's the child of a very famous um, poet who was imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution. And so he's used his art practice really to open eyes to, um, you know, kind of the history of China and to some of the human rights issues that, that still plague that country. Thanks, Joyce. And finally, um, do you have one piece of homework? Your professor, do you have homework for oh. the audience? <laughs> Something to do or think about or look into, a question to ask? Yeah, I would say that the next time you're in a debate with a friend or a family member about an issue, I challenge our listeners to really pause and think about the perspective of the other, right? To really just before you blurt out your, you know, answer debating something or your own perspective to just pause and really reflect on what that other person is thinking or feeling and try to see if you might put yourself in their shoes and try to empathize with their point of view before you speak your own. That's beautiful. And that's a perfect full circle moment coming back to the other, because that's where we started the conversation. Joyce, thank you so much for your time. This has been just such a gift and I've learned so much. Oh, it was so fun. And I'm really um, happy to participate and be part of your new podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks. That is it for the episode. Thank you for sharing this space and time with myself and Joyce. If you have any thoughts about the episode you'd like to share, please feel free to reach out at hello at the-heart-gallery.org. Also, if you have any ideas for who else I should talk to on the podcast, I can be reached at Rebecca Rivola on social media as well. And it would be lovely to have any of your support in the form of subscribing, rating, commenting, and most of all sharing if you can think of anyone who would enjoy this episode. Thank you goes to Samuel Cunningham for the wonderful podcast editing and to Cosmo Sheldrake for the intro and outro music as always i encourage you to go find the whole song is called pelicans we and until next time